Open your Bibles to Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. Our passage today, three verses, very powerful and helpful verses from the Old Testament. Page 927 of your pew Bibles, Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. This is a passage that the gems know very well, certainly verse 8 at least. And I would guess that maybe not just for the gems who are um, participating in the program this year, but it's very likely that if you were a gem or even before that, a Calvinette, as it used to be called, um, that these words would uh, uh, be familiar to you as well as it's been the gems theme for so many years before. Now, this is a Bible verse that many women in this church know, many people, of course, know, and even if it's been a long time since they memorized it, the the words are so helpful and so useful that they are kind of fastened by the Spirit of God to our minds, and that's a good thing, a wonderful gift. Uh, There's a reason that this passage is so tightly bound to our minds, that it is true, that it is a great text, um, certainly useful for the building of our faith. And so um, it's with really a spirit of expectation and, and even joy that we can open our Bibles knowing what we're going to find here is, should be like a treasure to us. Uh, having already prayed for illumination that we would understand this accurately and well, let's read starting at verse 6 of Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gems and congregation as well. We're going to start uh, start off with a, a thought experiment. What does it look like when somebody offers you something besides what you have really asked for? Imagine... Gems, that your friend tells everyone in school a lie about you. And it's not just a little white lie, it's something that they say you have done that's really bad that you have not done. Imagine that that person before that moment was somebody that you trusted very much. Imagine that the the whole school, your whole class finds out this lie that has been spoken against you. How would it feel, then, if that person came to you and said, here's five dollars because I hurt your feelings? Are we all square now? Are we all good again? How would it feel if that person said, well, what if I give you ten dollars because I see that I hurt your feelings really bad? Would it be all better after that? No, you would probably say, that's not really what I want. You'd say, that won't make me trust you again. Just $5 isn't even related to the way that you hurt me. You could see in that thought experiment that it's important to 
to give somebody what they, they actually need. In a relationship where there's love and trust, that um, just a small token, like a $5 bill, doesn't actually reconcile people to each other. But this is how Israel was acting when they sinned against God. Unfortunately, this is often how we act towards God when we would sin against him. But this isn't what God requires. This passage is from the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet. Sometimes in church we assume that, that people know these things. When they pick up their Bible, they would, they would know why a book of the Bible is called a certain thing. And, and I would always encourage you, gems and congregation, to learn why a book of the Bible has that name. And in this case, it's pretty straightforward. The book of the Bible is written by a man named Micah, who was a prophet. And the job of a prophet is to speak God's word. Sometimes speaking God's word was a really exciting thing that a prophet would get to do because it was going to be a word of encouragement and comfort for God's people. And so the prophet would come to people who were struggling, who were trying to follow God, who were seeking him and showing love to him by how they were living, and the prophet would say, keep it up. God sees you. God will help you when you're in trouble. But other times, a prophet would come to people and warn them that they're sinning and that they need to turn away from their sin towards God or they'll die. And the prophet has a lot of serious messages like that, including the prophet Micah. This is um, a time in, in Judah's history. Judah is this nation Micah is speaking to where they're really struggling to follow God well. And so this passage, even though it could have a lot of encouragement and good plain instruction in it, is more of the second kind of message, where Micah is saying, the Lord has shown you what is good, and Micah is saying, but you're not living this way. You need to turn to God and follow him. Now what have these people done? That's often a question that we should ask when we're reading the Bible, when we're reading a prophecy like this. What is the situation in Judah, in the nation where these people live. Spiritually, what is the the temperature, you might say, of the passage? This prophecy was meant for the nation of Judah. And at this time, you could say, well, I thought the Bible was written to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now that is true, that, that Israel was one nation for a little while, but it broke off eventually into two countries. One was called Israel, that was the bigger nation with more people and more land, but the nation that had broken off because of a civil war there was called Judah. And so Judah were the people of God, just like Israel was, and even though Judah had fewer people and less territory, Judah was the location of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is really, really important in God's story. Not only was it the location of Jerusalem, but God had special promises for the people of Judah, and it was actually Jesus who was from the line of Judah far later than, than this ministry of, of Micah. So, what is happening in Judah at the time? Well, there were times in Judah when People were following the Lord and trusting in him and serving him and things were going really well for them. There were those times. But then there were other times where people were doing what was evil. They were worshiping idols. They were mistreating one another. They were living selfishly. Thinking of that 
example where somebody tells a lie against you. There were a lot of times in Judah where people were speaking what is untrue about God. That's called blasphemy. And at those times, the Lord would discipline them. So why would I give you a little history of Judah? It's because people were confused at this time about what the Lord required of them. People were confused because they had forgotten the word of God. They had forgotten the law of God. It wasn't held before them by the priests as it should have been. And so people didn't know how to live. They were confused about how to live properly and correctly. How to to live in God's blessing in the world. They were confused because sometimes evil people were living well. And faithful servants of the Lord were struggling. And that can happen today in our lives too. And then there were other times when everyone is suffering together in a nation, even though there are some people, and there always are, some people who are trusting in the Lord as they should. And then there were different periods where everyone is prospering together, even though there are wicked people in a nation, they're they're prospering, and that's just by God's grace. And so Israel is a little bit confused. The people of Judah are confused about what the Lord would require And so that's what we find in our passage. What does the Lord require of you? And before we get to the right answer, we need to get to the wrong answer that some people thought. Did you notice what some people thought the Lord would require? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Some people thought that the Lord required rituals and ceremonies. Back in ancient times, and still today, people thought that you could get God's attention by making sacrifices, by giving him a $5 bill. Think again of the example of, of your friend giving you that $5 bill after they hurt you. Does that really make things better? Many people in Judah were doing that towards God in the time of Micah. Now today we might think that if we do a few things God might like, we'll get to live however we want, apart from God, and he'll approve of us. Here's how that might look in a church like our church. We talk a lot here, and I think rightly, about putting our faith in Jesus. And that is certainly something that we should do. Put your faith in Christ. Turn away from sin. Turn towards Christ Consider what he's done on the, at the cross. Consider the power of the resurrection of Jesus. It is so good that you would be encouraged to put your faith in Christ. We remember every week that you can't earn God's favor. So you have to trust that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. He did something that we could never do. That's the gospel. But then, our spiritual enemy, the devil, is so crafty that What creeps in, even with that good teaching, could be the idea that as long as you just say the right things in church, that you can live however you want outside of church. That it doesn't really connect what happens here on Sunday with the other six days of the week, or even as you leave from the sanctuary. There's this problem that creeps in when people think that you can talk about believing in Jesus And pay no attention to loving your neighbor, to acting kindly, and to continue walking humbly with God. In the Bible, the Lord says 
of this type of person in Isaiah 29, 13. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. They might say the right kinds of things in church. They might say the right kinds of things when they're with other Christians. Give that spiritual $5 bill when it's convenient while their hearts are far from me. So when somebody hurts you and offers you a $5 bill, it shows actually that they don't really know what they did. It shows that actually they don't really want to be restored to you fully and have a a long conversation about the damage that they've done to you and repent openly and, and correct that problem that they've created, but they think that they could just give a little sacrifice, sweep it under the rug, and move on. But brothers and sisters, especially gems, if we consider that Jesus died on the cross for us, and then we respond by just saying, well, we believe in a few things about him, and then we go live however we want to, it shows that we don't really know the Lord. It's easy to draw near to the Lord with words and with small actions, while also being far from him in our hearts. So, more important to God than sacrifices is that your heart is set on him. That you are devoted to him. That you love to follow him. In this passage, we're reminded that any person with real faith in God will offer him what he wants. Which is what? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. So very quickly, we'll take these in the three sections that, um, that Micah presents them. Act justly. What does it mean, then, to act justly? Eugems did a really good job in the litany of talking about what justice means. And first, before we even ask what justice might look like for us to do, I think it's good if we think about what God's justice is like. God is absolutely just. And somebody who knows God will also act justly. A Christian believes that when you're born again, when you believe in Jesus and understand what he did at the cross, that you then are are filled with the Spirit of God. And that means that when you're filled with God's Spirit, then you'll start acting more like God, showing the characteristics of God, which would include to act justly. So what does it mean then to act justly for us? Well, it's more than being fair, although fairness is part of it. A Christian will want everyone in the world to receive their due. And we recognize that because there's sin in the world, many people don't have what they need. And so the Christian will be interested in even putting effort towards helping people get what they need. When you think of this command, do you put yourself in the seat of the judge who decides what justice looks like or in in the seat of the accused person? Thinking of justice, you might think of a courtroom, right? And so if you're told to act justly, do you think right away about being the judge and, and doing justice? Or do you think in terms of the person who is accused? I think it'll be far more often that you're not the judge, but the, the, the recipient of justice, hopefully. And here's what that could look like, gems, for you to act justly, to receive God's justice. 
This means that if you deserve gems to be corrected or grounded even because you've lied or disobeyed your parents, that you'll accept that. That's partly what it means to act justly is to recognize that there are our punishments and discipline that happen in our home that we receive for our own good. There might be times when you would rather pay $5 than to accept discipline. But the Lord requires that we act justly. It means that we accept God's judgments for us and even our parents' correction of us. But there's this really wonderful thing about God's justice, that it isn't just about punishment. It's also a justice that restores us to how we should be living. This means that parents who act justly in the way that God does will not only discipline their children, but they'll do so in a way that teaches them how to live correctly, to restore them to life in a family. One way to think about justice is by sending people to jail. And that might be a good course of action for someone who has committed a terrible crime. But a fuller way to think about justice in our daily lives is how are we going to respond to people's sin in a way that restores them to community? Not just thinking about justice in the negative punishment sense, but in the positive sense of wanting people to be restored. Restored to families, restored to churches, restored to communities. When we act justly, we're seeking restoration for people to what they need. Someone who acts justly will be a restorer and promoter of the well-being of people around you. So when people hear this first command, they tend to think of the good guys and the bad guys, and they tend to think of themselves as the good guys. But instead of thinking only in those terms, I hope that we can develop a desire to see all people in the world live to their full potential. All people, and Jesus says, even our enemies, that we would want them to receive good things. That's what the Lord requires of us. So, first is to act justly, second, to love mercy. In the same way that justice is more than about being fair, loving mercy is more than about being nice. To love mercy is to have a gracious attitude towards people, a gracious attitude attitude. In our home, we talk a lot about we live with grace. Be patient. Be gentle. Think about our words. Think about our attitudes. Think, gems about the look that you give your parents or maybe your siblings when you're a little bit frustrated with them. Sometimes it doesn't even require for us to say something or do something, but that look on our face would show we're lacking mercy, kindness, gentleness, and patience with people around us. So to love mercy is to live with a gracious attitude towards other people. So no matter who it is, no matter what they've done, no matter how much money they have or how popular they are, a Christian cares about the person in front of you. You care about the person in front of you. So as you're growing up, it's tempted to evaluate people based on how popular, how impressive, how wealthy, how influential they are. And that doesn't just happen at, gem, at school, Gems, but it happens at work, it happens sometimes even in the church, it happens in neighborhoods, it happens in a family. But to love mercy is to treat every person as God wants us to treat them, to treat every person as we would hope they 
would treat us with kindness. So the second requirement of the Lord here for his people is to value people who could never repay you for the kindness that you're showing them. That's what mercy is. That's how God acts constantly towards us. Could we ever really repay God for the great things that he's done for us in Christ? No. We rely on his mercy, his grace for us. That's the type of kindness then that the Lord wants us to show towards other people that we meet. If God really lives in our hearts, we'll be like him. Think about that just for a moment. If God really lives in our hearts, we are going to be so full of love, so full of mercy, of patience, of joy, of peace, and all of those fruit of the Spirit, and we'll live with mercy towards people around us. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Listen to this description of God and ask if it describes you also. He is full uh, he is full of grace and compassion, slow to anger, and rich in steadfast love. Another passage in the Bible says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Does your mercy to your parents and your siblings and your classmates never cease? No, sometimes we fail, don't we? But the mercies of the Lord are new every morning because His faithfulness is so great. So, gems, and congregation. Do you wake up each morning with an expectation that God's mercy for you never ends and that the mercy then that you extend to other people is therefore also inexhaustible? It's so helpful that these two virtues of justice and mercy are right next to one another because I think it challenges people who might lean in one direction at the expense of the other. I would guess that there are people who would say, I am more focused on justice and doing the right thing and making sure uh, the scales are balanced and perhaps this morning could receive God's challenge to love mercy. But then there are others who would be so full of compassion and caring and patience that at times are failing to act justly and to uphold what is right, what is true, what is good, to be righteous and to promote righteousness in the lives of the people around us. It's so good that these, these virtues are right next to one another because it challenges us to, to walk a fine line between just mercy at the expense of justice or just justice at the expense of God's mercy. So, the Lord is perfectly both just and mercy. And when the Lord is living within us and at work in our hearts and in our minds, we too will, be, will, will love or will act justly and love mercy. Lastly, walking humbly with God. This should sound wonderful to the Christian, not, not a burden. It's not just a law. This is an amazing invitation. And that's exactly how it will sound to the person whose heart is set on the Lord. An invitation to walk humbly with God. To walk with God every day. One of my very favorite passages of the whole Bible is on, it's a passage about men who were walking with Jesus the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. They were walking along with him on the road to Emmaus, listening to Jesus teach about the scriptures, 
not even realizing that it was the risen Christ, the Lord of glory, walking with them along the way. And, and they were listening and soaking in this amazing teaching that he was giving. That's the call of the Christian every day, to walk with Jesus, to walk with God. I've heard, um, maybe to illustrate this, the humility that this will bring. I've heard of interviews with, with great athletes um, or, or with, with people who were, were on a team with an amazing all-time great athlete and what it was like to be on a team with Michael Jordan or with Wayne Gretzky. And some of my free time I do enjoy uh, watching interviews with athletes on YouTube. And, and you'll often find uh, players who played for the Bulls in the 90s or for the Edmonton Oilers with Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player ever, And the question is always, what was it like to be on Michael Jordan's team? What was it like to be on Wayne Gretzky's team? And I've never heard someone say that they believe that they were the real reason the team won the championship. They'll always say things like, you should have seen them even in practice. How good Michael Jordan was or how hard Wayne Gretzky played that they were such great athletes that to be around them was to realize how excellent they were and even for a professional athlete to realize, wow, he is just so much better than me at basketball or at hockey. So if that's true of being around Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky, how much more will we be humbled when we're walking with God? How much more will we be in awe of God, in awe of Christ, when we're walking daily with him, reading the Bible, praying, living in Christian community? When we're really walking with God, the result will be humility. Someone who walks with God knows that they're a sinner. I've heard a really good minister once say that the closer he was to God, It was sort of a strange thing that happened that the more he was aware of the sin in his life. And it's it's kind of a surprising thing for somebody to say that as he gets really close to God, he becomes more aware of his sin because you would think that the people who are really close to God would be the people who, who would just be without sin almost. But this pastor, I think, rightly said that the closer he was with Christ, with Jesus, The more in-depth he was studying the Word of God, the more he would see, wow, my heart is so often not set on God like it should be. And so the one who walks with God every day will know you're a sinner. It is humbling and uplifting to be near the Lord. It is humbling and uplifting to remember that Jesus died for us. When you're walking with God, you remember what God has done for us at the cross. One of the reasons that I love old hymns is how they help me walk humbly with God. And I would say, perhaps one of the errors of much modern worship music is that it it just desires to elevate us emotionally without humbling us in the presence of an almighty, holy, glorious God. But I think that's so often captured well in uh, the hymns of the ages that have lasted through many centuries. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my Lord, would die for me? Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners like me to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. For Jesus paid it all. 
That's a humbling statement. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. I was stained by my sin, but he washed it white as snow. So those are uplifting songs, to be sure, but they're also humbling songs, aren't they? Uh, The person who sings those kinds of songs and loves to read the word of God and understand who God is according to his word will be humbled while also so uplifted by Christ into God's presence. Someone who walks humbly with God also believes the word of God. You could read other books or articles. You could go on the internet all day. And then when you open the Bible, the Christian will say, wow, this is true. This is humbling. This is good. This is so much better than than all of those worldly sources of information. It is so pure, so powerful, so helpful, and so true. The person who walks humbly with God would open the Bible and say, this knowledge is different. This is absolutely true. Jesus said that when you hear the voice of the shepherd, you'll recognize his voice. When you're walking humbly with God, you're growing in your recognition of the voice of Jesus, the voice of God. And so not only would you value the Bible, but when you go out into the world, you can hear truth and separate it from error. To walk humbly with God means to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to hear Jesus' voice, and to go where he, where he sends Someone who walks with God will also love to pray. That's really at the core of, I think, that instruction. To walk humbly with God is to live a life of prayer. Think again just for a moment of being on Michael Jordan's basketball team. You would see every day that he can do things that you could never do. (laughs) That's what so many of those players say in those interviews. They saw every day how much better he was than even these very good professional athletes. And again, when you're living a life of prayer, you will see every day that God is capable of doing things that you could never do. And so the response then is to to go to the Lord in prayer, to trust in him, to accomplish what you cannot. So the response to realizing what God, that God could do things that you could never do is to pray, to pray to him. So this could seem like a lot of instructions. It could seem like a lot of commands for us this morning, but I want to close with how this passage comforts the Christian. We can't do what the Lord requires of us on our own effort. We can't do it. But God, in Christ and through the Spirit, gives us a new heart, and enables us to live in this way. Enables us to live in a way that he requires, to live in a way that pleases him, to live in a way, remember what Micah said, that is good. He has shown you what is good, and he will enable you by the Spirit to do what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So what the Lord requires of us, he will empower us to do. If you don't have money to give to God, young people, if you don't have any money to give to God today, you can still act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. Isn't that encouraging? You can follow God. Or if you're just a kid, you can love what the Lord requires. You can do what is good. 
This is an encouraging passage for people who are sick, an encouraging passage for people who are sad, an encouraging passage for people who are struggling in some way, that even if your life and various things in it don't seem like they're going like you want them to, you can still act justly, love mercy, and continue walking humbly with God. Even if you're at the end of your life and you can't even physically walk, you can walk humbly with God. Follow him, trust him, seek him. So we shouldn't just hear these commands this morning as a challenge. They are challenging. And we need God's spirit if we're going to live these, this way. But I hope that you, gems and congregation, will hear these commands and be encouraged that if you are acting justly, that if you really love mercy, and if you're walking humbly with God, you're living in the way that God loves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.